culture is suffering from what uh, some have referred to as a state of moral starvation. Our compass is at best broken. Our sails are set in the wrong direction. I could list off a litany of different statistical measures to make that point. I don't think I really need to. I could list off a whole line of different news stories and headlines. Perhaps I could just throw this out and it'll make the point of, of scandal and corruption and shootings. And we wring our hands and we ask ourselves, what should we do? How should we respond to a state of of moral starvation, and perhaps we should even expand this, or maybe I should say contract it, get a little bit more focused on not just the culture at, as a whole, but our families, our churches, our own lives, our communities. How should we respond? And I want to make sure that you understand I'm speaking broadly when I say that oftentimes this, this is the response, and I want you to understand this is not particular to one issue, but this is often the response to, to most any of the issues, especially among more conservative folks. We need more laws. We need tighter rules. And we need to reflect on that just for a moment. Is that really enough? Is that actually going to go to the heart of the issue? Is it possible that just might make it worse? These questions and these concerns are anything but new. They have been around a long, long time. We see it in our text. If you have your Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. Matthew is the first of the four Gospels that we have in the New Testament, uh, the first book of the New Testament. Matthew is where we are. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew 15 is where we are. We wrapped up chapter 14 last week. We're beginning now chapter 15, a longer te text to say the least. We're looking at verses 1 through 20. Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. Hear now the word of God. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say... If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said, to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? 
He answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, clearly you were riled up in this exchange with the men there that day. Ah, you were anything but pulling punches, speaking very strongly. And these were the churchy people. These were the religious folks. And we put those two things together, and it makes us just a little nervous here this morning. That there just might be circumstances in which you speak very strongly to religious people. And here we are, gathered this morning in the sanctuary of a church. To some degree or another, we are religious people. We ask that you would give us ears with which to hear. That you would help us to hear the warnings and heed them well. To hear your love. For it is only out of love that you would speak so strongly. Apathy would not generate such passion. Oh, would you give us ears to hear? We pray in your name. Amen. We read a few moments ago from Psalm 19, a beautiful psalm that speaks uh, so powerfully to the nuanced and multifaceted effects, transformative effects that the Word of God can have in the life of the believer. Psalm 1 speaks in very similar ways, but in much more poetic language. I want to read to you verse 3 of Psalm 1. Just setting it up, uh, the person being described here is one who is delighting in the law of the Lord and meditates on his law, his word, his statutes, day and night, meaning continually, all the time, all the time. And this person is described this way. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. This is a picture, a, a powerful, dramatic, beautiful image, a, a picture of flourishing. Of flourishing fruitfulness there in, in arid, dry conditions because of a, of a rootedness and a continual supply of nutrients and, and water. And it's meant to, to convey, this is an image of, of the believer rooted in the Scriptures meant to help us to see anew and afresh just what we have with the Scriptures, the Old and the New Testament, the Bible. What a gift! A gift that can hardly be assessed, a treasure 
that cannot begin to be to be weighed. That's what we have. Psalm 19 speaks to it. Psalm 1 speaks to it. Psalm 119 speaks to it. The whole Bible testifies to this in so many dramatic ways. And yet, and yet, with, with that in mind, we find ourselves constantly, continually, perpetually pulled in this terrible direction, often to the ditch towards legalism. We have this treasure, we have this gift, and yet we find ourselves tempted, pulled continually all the time in so many different ways towards legalism. By that, what I mean specifically is this, adding to God's Word, trying to augment it as though we could improve upon it. And those of you who know anything about computer programming would know this. You've got an intact program and you throw in some code that's not meant to be there within the program, what happens? It's like a virus. You've just destroyed it. You add, you ingenious pseudo-programmer, to what has been created and what was working just fine without your arrogant presumption addition. That's what we have with legalism. The addition of human tradition, man's words and ideas to God's ways and His commands. Last week we were talking about a, 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 the wonder, the wonder that we can see there just so, so clearly there in, in uh, Matthew 14, the wonder that God in Christ can be touched. Remember that? We were talking about that for a little while last week. The wonder that God in Christ can be touched. This week we have another wonder before us. And it's this. God has spoken in His Word. That, that's a wonder not to be taken for granted. However many times you've heard it. God has spoken in His Word. That's the wonder. But this week we have not just a wonder, we have a warning. Coupled with the wonder. God has spoken in His Word. That's the wonder. Here's the warning. We need not and dare not and must not fall into the trap of legalism. It's the wonder and the warning. We're going to look at this warning uh, that comes out so very clearly here in our text in, in three different ways, three different aspects of this. First, the clear case study that we have of legalism right here. That's the first thing. The second thing being the danger of such legalism, having done and examined it. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the cure, the cure for this cancer, if you will. So the case study, the danger, and then the one true cure. So let's start with the case study. The, and to get at that, it would be helpful to look at the parties. Who is there? Who is involved? Who's, who's on the scene? Well, we see that in verses 1 through 2. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Okay, so who are these men? The Pharisees, some of you may be familiar with them. We see them time and again in the Gospels. This is a minority party within Judaism that is um, greatly given to strict adherence to the Old Testament law. I'll just put it that way. Okay, That's who the Pharisees are. The scribes, 
are scholars, they are copyists of the sacred texts, widely regarded as experts on the text that they are constantly copying. That's the Pharisees, that's the scribes. Note also where they hail from, from Jerusalem, meaning that this is an official delegation come to investigate this Jesus, this rabbi who's been stirring up so many things up there in Galilee. This is not a tourism group come up from the south. This is an official delegation to check out and investigate what's going on. The ante has just been raised, you see, with what's transpiring here with this new appearance on the scene of these religious officials down from Jerusalem. What's the issue? What are they concerned about? Why are they there? Because of concern for their traditions. They, they speak to that very clearly. Now we need to understand something about what, what does the gospel, what do the gospel writers mean when we hear this word traditions? This is not like our traditions, like our holiday traditions. Right? This is not like, like that, like we eat this certain food, we have to have such and such a dish, and it has to be made the way grandma so-and-so did it, and then we're going to do that. It's not like those kinds of traditions that are valued and prized, but flexible when needed. Traditions in this case are anything but flexible. They are inscribed into the rock, so to speak, at least in the minds of the people that hold to them. These are the interpretations of the Old Testament law that have been passed down through the years that are to be strictly adhered to. And they're almost, almost on the same level in terms of authority as the words that they're interpreting themselves. In this case, specifically, the Pharisees and the scribes are hot and bothered, that's a Semitic term, uh, about this issue of hand-washing. Now, this is not about personal hygiene. So kids, don't any of you, I don't want to hear a report about you're having gone home and told your parents, Pastor Schwartz said, we don't have to wash our hands. That's not what this is about. This is not about personal hygiene. This is about ceremonial purity. Okay, And so in the Old Testament law, it was stated that the priests needed to wash their hands, and their feet actually, wash their hands before they attended to their particular duties. And now with these traditions, they have, it has been expanded upon that. It's not just the priests, it's everyone, and it's not just priestly duties, it's mealtime. So these are the traditions and Jesus, they feel, is messing with this. And not just that, he is leading people astray in this. So they are greatly concerned. This is a case study in legalism. This is how it begins. You have a text. You have teaching on the text that might be dead on right. And it keeps going out because now you've got practices and principles and planning and ideas set on the teaching that was rooted back on the text, but you see the further you go out, the more precarious you are. Does that, does that make sense? You're getting further and further out from the trunk of the tree as you're moving out away from the text, and you're getting on slipperier and slipperier, thinner, or slippery ground, thinner ice. Okay? And they're way out there on the branch at this point. Off of it. 
Now, before we skip into the dangers or move into the dangers of this, we need to be clear that we are vulnerable to this very same thing. Every single one of us in this room. In fact, it's not just that we're vulnerable. It's not just that it's possible that we are legalists. It is certain that every one of us in here, in one way or another, in some arena of our lives, is a legalist in terms of adding to God's perfect word with our brilliant traditions. Okay? How might this work? True story. This happened on the mission field. None of our missionaries is, is beyond, is before they're any of their time. But, um, it happened over peanut butter. You had the first wave of the missionaries who go out. It's rough. Stark conditions. Many sacrifices having to be made. Many luxuries from home having to be left behind and forgotten. They spend years there. It's hard ground. It's a struggle to get things going. And after a while, things begin to, to, to take, if you will. The, the mission begins to be established. Now comes wave two. Wave one, they're there. They're gray-haired and wrinkled and cranky. Wave two comes to augment and assist wave one. Things are easier, right? They come, they bring some luxuries, including, yes, peanut butter. But wave one, over time, has begun to associate the sacrificial spirit, you see, of living for Jesus and carrying the cross as being these sacrifices, including such ridiculous flippant things as peanut butter, they immediately cannot get it out of their minds, their hearts, that these people, these newbies, simply are not committed. Now you laugh. This is a true story. And you know what ha happened as a consequence of the conflict over the stupid peanut butter? It destroyed their work. That mission was undone. It's a crater there where that began. Now, you think, well, I would never do that. Look at the history of the church. Going all the way back to the very beginning, we see this. Paul's writing about it in some of his letters. And not just with Paul in some of his letters, but I mean beyond that, in more recent history, just in the last century, the last few decades, we have fought over going to pool halls and playing poker. And today, we fight about parenting techniques. Cloth diapers? disposable diapers, this and that and who's right and what's proper, or we make our lists about what's right to read if you really love Jesus. What movies are appropriate to view if you really love Jesus. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be wise in applying certain aspects of, of wisdom and discernment to these things, but we've got to be very careful about our traditions and putting them up at the same level of the commandments of God. We need to be very careful about this, and that takes me into the danger. Because what does Jesus say to these men? What does he say? He starts with a, a real soft pitch, doesn't he? Hypocrites! Well, that ought to get our attention. Uh, that's a word that literally means play actors. It means they're saying to be, they're pretending to be something that they simply are not. Now, why does Jesus say that? Why? I mean, he doesn't just 
throw that word around there. You see it there in verse 7. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you. Well, for starters, they were negating the commands of God. You see that in verse 9. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of, of men. Here's how the dynamic works in all cases. We add human traditions to the commandments of God, which always, without any exception, nullifies the commandments of God. There's no exception to this rule. As we add the traditions and rules of man to the law and commandments of God, it is always the law and commandments of God that are nullified and negated. That's always the way it works. And Jesus throws out there the case study, the very thing that they are... Well, he, he counters their charge with his own, and that's much stronger than the one they have. Verse 3, He answered them, and why do you... And by the, that you is a sense of emphasis. Why do you... Break the commandment of God, another sense of emphasis, for the sake of your tradition. For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. There's a lot more I could say on that. I just want to simply just summarize it, that what they're doing is they're ignoring the fifth commandment by gaming the system with their pious, hypocritical vows. That's what's going on. And Jesus will have none of it. And he is hitting them right between the eyes. This was a crass negation of the Word of God, and it is the height of presumption and arrogance. And so he calls them, hypocrites not just for that reason but there's another you see it not just because they're negating the commands of god but because of their ignoring the state of their own hearts and you see this in in uh, verse 8 this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me they were forgetting the very purpose of those ceremonial laws that they were so upset about the purpose of those laws in particular, though, the very ones that they're upset about, though, the ones pertaining to uh, ceremonial hand-washing, was meant to be a picture for the people of the realities of God's holiness and our sinfulness. That's what that was about. They're completely forgetting about this and focusing upon external acts. What does he say? Verse 11, verse 10, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Skipping down to verse 16. And he said, are you st also still without understanding? Or other translations say, are you so dull? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart? And this defiles a person, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Their focus, the focus of the Pharisees and the scribes and the focus of any legalist is upon the externals, upon what you can see. What does holiness look like? And how can I measure it? And how can I quantify it? And chart it out? And what is God interested in? The heart. Things that cannot be measured. 
It's just not that easy. He is calling for justice and mercy and faithfulness. And that doesn't work out very well in trying to chart it out on a diagram or a checklist. Not at all. And so Jesus calls them hypocrites. Even worse, verse 13, he says, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not been planted will be rooted up. Think weed. Noxious weed in a garden. He goes further. And if the blind lead the blind, excuse me, let them alone, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. It seems that he's tacking in, um, tapping into this idea at the time that a, a rabbi was thought to be really something if they, if they were known to be the guides of the blind. Not necessarily literally, though there were certainly many, many, many physically blind people in the ancient Near East. Jesus is saying, oh, you're the guides of the blind, all right. Blind yourself. You, you, you've, you've encapsulated blindness. And you're leading others astray. You're worried about my leading people astray. Look in the mirror. In essence, is, is what he's getting at here. Now, we might want to pause here at this moment and say, is it that bad? Is it so bad... These charges that Jesus is laying out here, is it so bad that he would reserve his harshest criticism for such people? I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but Jesus, his harshest criticism in the Gospels is lodged against legalists like the Pharisees and the scribes. Well, let's think about that for a moment. Is it such a big deal? It's rooted in pride, and it bears the putrid fruit of pride. Here's, here's how it plays out. We create rules and traditions and laws of our own making, and then we congratulate ourselves for having attained and walked according to them, and then we become pr proud and self-righteous and boastful about that, and we begin to look down on those who don't, because after all, we're keeping these good, wise rules, and they're not, that then creates and spins up a, a atmosphere of strife and division. See how this is playing out? And then that destroys any hope of witness to the watching world. So yes, it's a big deal. And it is to be condemned. It is to be condemned. G.I. Packer, it's a great quote there at the top of your quotes and notes page here. Concise Theology, a book I'd readily recommend for you. I'm going to read to you this quote here, just the second paragraph of it. So far then from enriching our relationship with God as it seeks to do, legalism in all its forms does the opposite. It puts that relationship in jeopardy, and by stopping us focusing on Christ, it starves our souls while feeding our pride. Legalistic religion, in all its forms, should be avoided like the plague. God has spoken in His Word. That's the wonder. Oh, that we would hear that. God has spoken in His Word. But the warning, we must not fall into the trap of legalism. 
God has spoken in his word. We must not fall into the trap of legalism. That takes us to the final point, the cure. The cure. came across this quote just this past week from R.C. Sproul. This is what he said. The only antidote to legalism is a serious study of God's word. Only then will we be properly instructed in what is pleasing and displeasing to God. I read that and I thought, that's it? Really? Then I reread it. The only antidote to legalism is a serious study of God's word. Only then will we be properly instructed in what is pleasing and displeasing to God. He's actually right. For the word of God operates in at least these ways in our, in our lives. First, it functions as a mirror. It functions as a mirror. It reflects God's perfect righteousness to us. It reflects, it shows, it illustrates, it, it speaks of his perfect character. It reflects that to us. And then in so doing, it also, in reflecting his righteousness, it reveals our sinfulness. It reveals our need. You see, legalism puffs up and keeps us from Christ. Why would we need him? The word of God humbles us and drives us to him. We say, think of the Sermon on the Mount, we say, I haven't slept around, what's the problem? He says, have you lusted? We say, I haven't killed anybody, I haven't murdered anyone. He says, have you hated? It holds this mirror up before us and drives us to the cross. It drives us to him. And once it's done, well, never done, but as it has begun to do this work of functioning as a mirror in our lives, then we are ready for its second function, and that is as a map to guide us, to guide our, a life of, of thanks, of, of seeking, and, and uh, Sproul alludes to this, of learning how to respond to this one who has loved us so well. It serves us as, as a map to guide our thanks, to guide our steps in wisdom as to what does it mean to be placed in this world by our master and to live as his servants, to be placed in a family and to live as the children of this father. What does it mean? What does it look like? What would such love, responding to such love, look like? Sproul is absolutely right. As we dig down into the scriptures, it, it has an expulsive power. It has an expulsive power as we sit down and taste of the banquet, of the beauty and the wonder and the profundity of what we find here in the Scriptures again and again and again and again such that we lose our appetite for the junk food and the poison of legalism. It has an expulsive power. We have no taste for that anymore to the extent... We are tasting at the banquet. God has spoken in His Word. May we not, we must not, fall into this trap of legalism. Let me end with this. Billy Graham. It was the end of an era, to be sure, with his passing last week. Uh, he was the pastor of presidents, uh, the preacher to millions, uh, holding fast, so beautifully, praise God, to the very, very end rightly described by no few pundits as likely the most influential Christian of the 20th century. No question about it. Who, who's, whose legacy is going to last for years to come. 
And you have to ask, and some pundits are right now, and well, they should, should we should too, ask why? How is it that his influence, his ministry, could be so wide-ranging and long-lasting? How can that be, this dairy farmer from Charlotte, North Carolina, before Charlotte was Charlotte? How can it be? Well, there's a lot of different ways to get at the answer to that question, but I think certainly a key part of the answer is this. He stayed on message. This is why his ministry had the breadth of influence that it has had and the length, the longevity of the influence that it has had. He stayed on message, and the message is a message that transcends trends and outlasts culture. The gospel. There's something of that in what we're learning here in this text. We need to stay on message. We need to stay on message. We need to let the word speak and not think ourselves so much of ourselves that we find a need to add anything to it. We need to trust God enough to let it speak and to stay on message. He has spoken in His Word. We must not fall into the trap of legalism. Let's pray together. Lord, again, from Psalm 1, thank You. Thank You for this picture of the flourishing. The flourishing tree. We, uh, we can see there, here in, in this text, in this uh, account there that day, um, there at Gennesaret, uh, you're encountering these well-intentioned, perhaps, but certainly presumptuous individuals. And we can learn something in the folly of legalism just in that they have a, legalists have a problem with the true and living God. With you. And so that's to live a life of chaff, of dryness and death, not flourishing. We see the disciples struggling with this. We see the early church struggling with this. We see all of church history struggling with this. We see ourselves, to the degree we are honest, struggling with this. We are none of us immune. We ask that you'd help us to see this disease in ourselves and to go to you again and again for the cure. Oh Lord, let the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.